Chapter Twenty Six of the Riddle of the Sands. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Gesine. The Riddle of the Sands by Erskine Childers. Chapter Twenty Six, The Seven Zeals. Selecting the very humblest gusthouse I could discover, I laid down my bundle and called for beer, bread, and wurst. The landlord, as I had expected, spoke the Frisian dialect, so that, though he was rather difficult to understand, he had no doubts about the purity of my own German high accent. He was a worthy fellow, and hospitably interested. Did I want a bed? No, I was going on to Benzazil, I said to sleep there, and take the morning post-shift to Langeoog Island. I had not forgotten our friends, the twin giants, and their functions. "'I was not an islander myself?' he asked. "'No, but I had a married sister there, had just returned from a year's voyaging, and was going to visit her. "'By the way,' I asked, "'how are they getting on with the Benzatif?' My friend shrugged his shoulders. It was finished, he believed." And the connection to Wittmund? Under construction still. Langeoog would be going ahead then. Oh, he supposed so, but he did not believe in these new-fangled schemes. But it was good for trade, I supposed. Isens would benefit in sending goods by the Tief. What was the traffic, by the way? Oh, a few more barge-loads than before of brick, timber, coals, etc., but it would come to nothing he knew— Aktiengesellschaften, companies, were an invention of the devil. A few speculators got them up and made money themselves out of land and contracts, while the shareholders they had hoodwinked starved. "'There's something in that,' I conceded to this bigoted old conservative. "'My sister at Langeoog rents her lodging-house from a man named Dolman. They say he owns a heap of land about. I saw his yacht once.' pink velvet and electric light inside, they say. "'That's the name,' said mine host. "'That's one of them, some sort of foreigner, I've heard. Runs a salvage concern, too, used way.' "'Well, he won't get any of my savings,' I laughed, and soon after took my leave, and inquired from a passer-by the road to Dornum. "'Follow the railway,' I was told.' With a warm wind in my face from the south-west, fleecy clouds and a half-moon overhead, I set out, not for Benzazil, but for Benzatif, which I knew must cross the road to Dornum somewhere. A mile or so of cobbled causeway, flanked with ditches and willows, and running cheek by jowl with a railway track. Then a bridge, and below me the Tief, which was, in fact, a small canal. A rutty track left the road and sloped down to it one side, a rough siding left the railway and sloped down to it on the other. I lit a pipe and sat on the parapet for a little. No one was staring, so with great circumspection I began to reconnoitre the left bank to the north. The siding entered a fenced enclosure by a locked gate, a gate I could have easily climbed, but I judged it wiser to go round by the bridge again, and look across. The enclosure was a small coal store, nothing more. 
there were gaunt heaps of coal glittering in the moonlight, a barge half-loaded lying alongside, and a deserted office-building. I skulked along a sandy towpath in solitude. Fens and field were round me, as the map had said, willows and osier beds, the dim forms of cattle, the low melody of wind roaming unfettered over a plain, once or twice the flutter and quack of a startled wild duck. Presently I came to a farmhouse, dark and silent, opposite it, in the canal, a couple of empty barges. I climbed into one of these, and sounded with my stick on the off-side, barely three feet, and the torpedo-boat melted out of my speculations. The stream, I observed also, was only just wide enough for two barges to pass with comfort. Other farms I saw, or thought I saw, and a few more barges lying in side-cuts linked by culverts to the canal, but nothing noteworthy, and mindful that I had to explore the Wittmann side of the railway too, I turned back, already a trifle damped in spirits, but still keenly expectant. Passing under the road and railway, I again followed the towpath, which, after half a mile, plunged into woods, then entered a clearing and another fenced enclosure, a timber-yard by the look of it. This time I stripped from the waist downward, waded over, dressed again, and climbed the paling. There was a cottage standing back, but its occupants evidently slept. I was in a timber-yard, by the stacks of wood and the steam sawmill, but something more than a timber-yard, for as I warily advanced under the shadow of the trees at the edge of the clearing, I came to a long tin shed, which strangely reminded me of Mehmet, and below it, nearer the canal, loomed a dark skeleton framework, which proved to be a half-built vessel on stocks. Close by was a similar object, only nearly completed, a barge. A paved slipway led to the water here, and the canal broadened to a siding or backwater, in which lay seven or eight more barges in tiers. I scaled another paling and went on, walking, I should think, three miles by the side of the canal, till the question of bed and ulterior plans brought me to a halt. It was past midnight, and I was adding little to my information. I had encountered a brickfield, but soon after that there was increasing proof that the canal was as yet little used for traffic. It grew narrower, and there were many signs of recent labour for its improvement. In one place a dammed-off deviation was being excavated, abruptly ending, evidently to a bridge an impossible bend. The path had become atrocious, and my boots were heavy with clay. Bearing in mind the abruptly ending blue line on the map, I considered it useless to go farther, and retraced my steps, trying to concoct a story which would satisfy an irritable Aeson's innkeeper that it was a respectable wayfarer and not a tramp or lunatic who knocked him up at half-past one or thereabouts. But a much more practical resource occurred to me as I approached the timber-yard, for lodging, free and accessible, lay there ready to hand. I boarded one of the empty barges in the backwater, and surveyed my quarters for the night. It was of a similar pattern to all the others I had seen, a lighter, strictly, in the sense that it had no means of self-propulsion, and no separate quarters for a crew, 
the whole interior of the hull being free for cargo. At both bow and stern there were ten feet or so of deck, garnished with bits and bollards. The rest was an open wall, flanked by waterways of substantial breadth, the whole of stout construction, and, for a humble lighter, of well-proportioned and even graceful design, with a marked forward shear, and, as I had observed in the specimen on the stocks, easy lines at the stern. In short, it was apparent, even to an ignorant landsman like myself, that she was designed not merely for canal work, but for rough water, and well she might be, for, though the few miles of sea she had to cross in order to reach the islands were both shallow and sheltered, I knew from experience what a vicious surf they could be whipped into by a sudden gale. It must not be supposed that I dwelt on this matter. On limited lines I was making progress, but the wings of my imagination still drooped nervelessly at my sides. Otherwise I perhaps should have examined this lighter more particularly, instead of regarding it mainly as a convenient hiding-place. Under the stern-deck was stored a massive roll of tarpaulin, a corner of which made an excellent blanket, and my bundle a good pillow. It was a descent from the luxury of last night, but a spy, I reflected philosophically, cannot expect a feather-bed two nights running, and this one was at any rate airier and roomier than the coffin-like bunk of the Dulcibella, and not so very much harder. When snugly ensconced, I studied the map by intermittent matchlight. It had been dawning on me in the last half-hour that this canal was only one of several, that in concentrating myself on Esens and Benzazil, I had forgotten that there were other villages ending in Zeel, also furnished on the chart with corkscrew streams, and, moreover, that Boomer's statistics of depth and distance had been marshalled in seven categories, A to G. The very first match brought full recollection as to the villages. The suffix Zeel repeated itself all round the coastline. Five miles eastward of Benzazil was Neuharlingazil, and farther on Karolinenzil. Four miles westward was Dornumazil, and farther on Nesmazil and Hügenriederzil. That was six on the north coast of the peninsula alone. On the west coast, facing the Ems, there was only one, Gretzil, a good way south of Norden. But on the east, facing the Jade, there were no less than eight at very close intervals. A moment's thought, and I disregarded this latter group. They had nothing to do with Esens, nor had they any imaginable raison d'être as veins for commerce, differing markedly in this respect from the group of six on the north coast, whose outlook was the chain of islands, and whose inland centre, almost exactly, was Esens. I still wanted one to make seven, and as a working hypothesis, added the solitary Gretzil. At all seven villages, streams debouched, as at Benzazil. From all seven points of issue, dotted lines were marked seaward, intersecting the great tidal sands and leading towards the islands. And on the mainland, behind the whole sevenfold system, ran the loop of railway. But there were manifold minor points of difference. No stream boasted so deep and decisive a blue lintel as did Benzatif. None penetrated so far into the hinterland. 
they varied in length and sinuosity. Two, those belonging to Hilgenriedersiel and Gretziel, appeared not to reach the railway at all. On the other hand, Karolinensiel, opposite Wangerog Island, had a branch line all to itself. Match after match waxed and waned as I puzzled over the mystic seven. In the end I puzzled myself to sleep, with the one fixed idea that tomorrow, on my way back to Norden, I must see more of these budding canals, if such they were. My dreams that night were of a mighty chain of redoubts at masked batteries, couching perdu among the sand dunes of desolate islets, built coral-like by infinitely slow and secret labour, fed by lethal cargoes borne in lighters and in charge of stealthy mutes who, one and all, bore the likeness of Grimm. I was up and away at daylight, the weather mild and showery, meeting some navvies on my way back to the road, who gave me good morning and a stare. On the bridge I halted and fell into torments of indecision. There was so much to do and so little time to do it in. The whole problem seemed to have been multiplied by seven, and the total again doubled and redoubled. Seven blue lines on land, seven dotted lines on the sea, seven islands in the offing. Once I was near deciding to put my pretext into practice and cross to Langwog, but that meant missing the rendezvous, and I was loth to do that. At any rate I wanted breakfast badly, and the best way to get it, and at the same time to open new ground, was to walk to Dornum. Then I should find a blue line called the Neuestief, leading to Dornumersiel on the coast. That explored I could pass on to Nesse, where there was another blue line to Nesmersiel. All this was on my way to Norden, and I should have the railway constantly at my back to carry me there in the evening. The last train, my timetable told me, was one reaching Norden at 7.15pm. I could catch this at Hager Station at 5.7. A brisk walk of six miles brought me, ravenously hungry, to Dornum. Road and railway had clung together all the time, and about halfway had been joined on the left by a third companion in the shape of a puny stream which I knew from the map to be the upper portion of Noy's teeth. Wriggling and doubling like an eel, choked with sedges and reeds, it had no pretensions to be navigable. At length it looped away into the fens out of sight, only to reappear again close to Dornum in a much more dignified guise. There was no siding where the railway crossed it, but at the town itself, which had skirted on the east, a towpath began, and a piled wharf had been recently constructed. Going on to this was a red brick building with the look of a warehouse, roofless as yet, and with workmen on its scaffolds. It sharpened the edge of my appetite. If I had been wise, I should have been content with a snack bought at a counter, but a thirst for hot coffee and clues induced me to repeat the experiment of Esens and seek a primitive beer-house. I was less lucky on this occasion. The house I chose was obscure enough, but its proprietor was no simple Frisian, but an ill-looking rascal with shifty eyes and a debauched complexion, who showed a most unwelcome curiosity in his customer. As a last fatality, he wore a peaked cap like my own, and turned out to be an ex-sailor. I should have fled at the sight of him, had I had the chance, 
but I was attended to firstly by a slatternly girl, who I am sure called him up to view me. To explain my muddy boots and trousers, I said I had walked from Eason's, and from that I found myself involved in a tangle of impromptu lies. Floundering down an old groove, I placed my sister this time on Baltrum Island, and said I was going to Dornemasil, which is opposite Baltrum, to cross from there. As this was drawing a bow at a venture, I dared not assume local knowledge, and spoke of the visit as my first. Dornemasil was a lucky shot. There was a ferry galliot from there to Baltrum, but he knew, or pretended to know, Baltrum, and had not heard of my sister. I grew the more nervous in that I saw from the first that he took me to be of better condition than most merchant seamen, and, to make matters worse, I was imprudent enough in pleading haste to pull out from an inner pocket my gold watch, with a chain and seals attached. He told me there was no hurry, that I should miss the tide at Dornemersil, and then fell to pressing strong waters on me, and asking questions whose insinuating grossness gave me the key to his biography. He must have been at one stage in his career a dockside crimp, one of those foul sharks who prey on discharged seamen, and as often as not are ex-seamen themselves, versed in the weaknesses of the tribe. He was now keeping his hand in with me, who unhappily purported to belong to the very class he was used to victimise, and, moreover, had a gold watch, and, doubtless, a full purse. Nothing more ridiculously inopportune could have befallen me, or more dangerous, for his class are as cosmopolitan as waiters and concierge, with as facile a gift for language, and as unerring a scent for nationality. Sure enough, the fellow recognised mine, and positively challenged me with it in fairly fluent English with a Yankee twang. Encumbered with a mythical sister, of course I stuck to my lie, said I had been on an English ship so long that I had picked up the accent, and also gave him some words in broken English. At the same time I showed I thought him an impertinent nuisance, paid my score and walked out. Quit of him? Not a bit of it. He insisted on showing me the way to Dornemersil, and followed me down the street. Perceiving that he was in liquor, in spite of the early hour, I dared not risk a quarrelsome scene with a man who already knew so much about me, and might at any moment elicit more. So I melted and humoured him, treated him in a gin-shop in the hope of giving him the slip, a disastrous resource which was made a precedent for further potations elsewhere. I would gladly draw a veil over our scandalous progress through peaceable Dornum, of the terrors I experienced when he introduced me as his friend, and as his English friend, and of the abasement I felt, too, as, linked arm in arm, we trod the three miles of road coastwards. It was his malicious whim that we should talk English, a fortunate whim, as it turned out, because I knew no forecastle German, but had a smattering of forecastle English, gathered from Cutliffe, Hine, and Kipling. With these I extemporised a disreputable hybrid, mostly consisting of oaths and blasphemies, and so yarned of imaginary voyages. Of course he knew every port in the world, but happily was none too critical, owing to repeated schnapsen. Nevertheless, it was a deplorable contretemps 
from every point of view. I was wasting my time, for the road took a different direction to the noise teeth, so that I had not even the advantage of inspecting the canal, and only met with it when we reached the sea. Here it split into two mouths, both furnished with locks, and emptying into two little mud-hole harbours, replicas of Benzazil, each owning its cluster of houses. I made straight for the gasthouse at Dornemersil, primed my companion well, and asked him to wait while I saw about a boat in the harbour, but, needless to say, I never rejoined him. I just took a cursory look at the left-hand harbour, saw a lighter locking through, for the tide was high, and then walked as fast as my legs would carry me to the outermost dyke, mounted it, and strode along the sea westwards in the teeth of a smart shower of rain, full of deep apprehensions as to the stir and gossip my disappearance might cause, if my odious crimp was sober enough to discover it. As soon as I deemed it safe, I dropped on to the sand and ran till I could run no more. Then I sat on my bundle with my back to the dyke in partial shelter from the rain, watching the sea recede from the flats and dwindle into slender mirrors, and the laden clouds fly weeping over the islands till those pale shapes were lost in mist. The barge I had seen locking through was creeping across towards Langeoog, behind a tug and a wisp of smoke. No more exploration by daylight. That was my first resolve, for I felt as if the country must be ringing with reports of an Englishman in disguise. I must remain in hiding till dusk, then regain the railway and slink into that train to Norden. Now directly I began to resign myself to temporary inaction, and to centre my thoughts on the rendezvous, a new doubt assailed me. Nothing had seemed more certain yesterday than that Norden was the scene of the rendezvous, but that was before the seven zeals had come into prominence. The name Norden now sounded naked and unconvincing. As I wondered why, it suddenly occurred to me that all the stations along this northern line— though farther inland than Norden, were equally coast stations, in the sense that they were in touch with harbours, of a sort, on the coast. Norden had its tidal creek, but Esens and Dornum had their teefs, or canals. Fool that I had been to put such a narrow and such a literal construction on the phrase, the tide serves. Which was it more likely that my conspirators would visit, Norden, whose intrusion into our theories was purely hypothetical, or one of these zeals to whose sevenfold systems all my latest observations gave such transcendent significance. There was only one answer, and it filled me with profound discouragement. Seven possible rendezvous, eight counting Norden. Which to make for? Out came the timetable and map, and with them hope. The case was not so bad after all, it demanded no immediate change of plan, though it imported grave uncertainties and risks. Norden was still the objective, but mainly as a railway junction, only remotely as a seaport. Though the possible rendezvous were eight, the possible stations were reduced to five, Norden, Hage, Dornum, Esens, Wittmund, all on one single line. Trains from east to west along this line were negligible, because there was none that could be called night trains, the latest being the one I had this morning fixed on to bring me to Norden, where it arrived at 
of trains from west to east there was only one that need be considered, the same one that I had travelled by last night, leaving Norden at 7.43 and reaching Esens at 8.50 and Wittmund at 9.13. This train, as the reader who was with me in it knows, was in correspondence with another from Emden and the south, and also, I now found, with services from Hannover, Bremen and Berlin. He will also remember that I had to wait three quarters of an hour at Norden from 7 to 7.43. The platform at Norden Junction, therefore, between 7.15, when I should arrive at it from the east, and 7.43, when Boomer and his unknown friend should leave it for the east, there, and in that half-hour, was my opportunity for recognising and shadowing two at least of the conspirators. I must take the train they took, and alight where they alighted. If I could not find them at all, I should be thrown back on the rejected view that Norden itself was the rendezvous, and should wait there till 10.46. In the meantime it was all very well to resolve on inaction till dusk, but after an hour's rest, damp clothes and feet and the absence of pursuers tempted me to take the field again. Avoiding roads and villages as long as it was light, I cut across country south-westwards, a dismal and laborious journey, with oozy fens and knee-deep drains to cross, with circuits to be made to pass clear of peasants, and many furtive crouchings behind dikes and willows. What little I learnt was in harmony with previous explorations, for my track cut at right angles the line of the Harkatief, the stream issuing at Nesmazil. It, too, was in the nature of a canal, but only in embryo, at the point I touched it, south of Nessa. Works on a deviation were in progress, and in a short digression downstream, I sighted another lighter building yard. As for Hilgenriedersil, the fourth of the seven, I had no time to see anything of it at all. At seven o'clock I was at Hager Station, very tired, wet and footsore, after covering nearly twenty-five miles all told since I left my bed in the lighter. From here to Norden it was a run in the train of ten minutes, which I spent in eating some rye bread and smoked eel, and in scraping the mud off my boots and trousers. Fatigue vanished when the train drew up at the station, and the momentous twenty-eight minutes began to run their course. Having donned a bulky muffler and turned up the collar of my pea-jacket, I crossed over immediately to the upper platform, walked boldly to the booking office, and at once sighted von Brüning, yes, von Brüning, in Mufti. But there was no mistaking his tall athletic figure, pleasant features, and neat brown beard. He was just leaving the window, gathering up a ticket and some coins. I joined a queue of three or four persons who were waiting their turn, flattened myself between them and the partition till I heard him walk out. Not having heard what station he had booked for, I took a fourth-class ticket to Wittmund, which covered all chances. Then, with my chin buried in my muffler, I sought the darkest corner of the ill-lit combination of bar and waiting-room, where, by the tiresome custom in Germany, would-be travellers are penned till their train is ready. Von Brüning I perceived sitting in another corner, 
with his hat over his eyes and a cigar between his lips. A boy brought me a tankard of tawny Munich beer, and sipping it I watched. People passed in and out, but nobody spoke to the sailor and Mufti. When a quarter of an hour elapsed, a platform door opened, and a raucous voice shouted, Hage Dornum Esens Wittmund! A knot of passengers jostled out to the platform, showing their tickets. I was slow over my beer, and was last of the knot, with von Brüning immediately ahead of me, so close that his cigar smoke curled into my face. I looked over his shoulder at the ticket he showed, missed the name, but caught a muttered double sibilant from the official who checked it, ran over the stations in my head, and pounced on Esens. That was as much as I wanted to know for the present, so I made my way to a fourth-class compartment and lost sight of my quarry, not venturing till the last door had banged to look out of the window. When I did so, two late arrivals were hurrying up to a carriage, one tall, one of middle height, both in cloaks and comforters. Their features I could not distinguish, but certainly neither of them was Boomer. They had not come through the waiting-room door, but plainly from the dark end of the platform where they had been waiting. A guard, with some surly remonstrances, shut them in, and the train started. Esens. The name had not surprised me. It fulfilled a presentiment that had been growing in strength all the afternoon. For the last time I referred to the map, pulpy and blurred with a day's exposure, and tried to etch it into my brain. I marked the road to Benzazil, and how it converged by degrees on the Benzatif until they met at the sea. The tide serves. Longing for Davis to help me, I reckoned, by the aid of my diary, that high tide at Benzazil would be about eleven, and for two hours, I remembered, say from ten to twelve tonight, there were from five to six feet of water in the harbour. We should reach Esens at eight-fifty. Would they drive, as von Brüning had done a week ago? I tightened my belt, stamped my mud-burdened boots, and thanked God for the Munich beer. Whither they were going from Benzazil, and in what, and how was I to follow them? These were nebulous questions, but I was in a fettle for anything. Boat-stealing was a bagatelle. Fortune, I thought, smiled. Romance beckoned. Even the sea looked kind. I, and I do not know, but that imagination was already beginning to unstiffen and flutter those nerveless wings. End of chapter 26